Fellas, I just got the idea for our first TMS documentary. It's going to be on Outcast. It's going to be on the Love Below. St- speaker box Love Below. It's going to be called Two Buses. Right. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Love it. I need to find the bus driver for Big Boy's bus to ask him how he kept the bus on the road. Because with all that contact, right. I'd have driven y'all off a cliff. How come you didn't crash and kill us all? I'd have drove you all off the road. <laughs> Welcome to the B-Side, the Music Snobs. This is the Music Snobs Podcast. My name is Arthur, your lead voice, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Isaac and Jahan. April 26th, 2019 marks the 25th anniversary of OutKast's Southern Playalistic Cadillac Music a release that marked a shift in hip-hop's direction and started the career of one of the greatest rap groups of all time. And we have royalty joining us to talk about that album and OutKast's legacy. Our guest snob for this discussion is longtime OutKast and Organized Noise contributor Keisha Jackson. Royalty? Yes. What? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Daughter of Millie Jackson. (laughs) Yes. She's royalty. She's royalty. I'll be a descendant of royalty. That's She's the okay. queen. That's the, the queen mother. Okay, that's Let's do it. it. That yeah, way. yeah. Let's do it yeah, that I'll way. Take it. I'll take <laughs> it. Let's do it that way. Because for years, I knew I knew of your mother, but I never heard any of her music because it was basically like, okay, the blue light in the basement came yep. on. They start to spout, start spinning Millie Jackson music. And all the so kids had to go, to go upstairs. To yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was going on in the basement? And most of the time, they didn't. Most of the time, they didn't go upstairs. They were peeking. <laughs> right yeah. from the banisters from the banisters, from the banisters yeah. exactly yeah uh owner of one voice entertainment yes. uh vocal coach extraordinaire uh background vocals for like everybody well let's talk about why you're here okay you are here to join us to talk about one of the greatest hip-hop groups of all time agreed without any argument and that would be outcast yes so wait, you mean to tell me that Southern Playlistic came out 25 years ago? Damn. Yeah. So Isaac, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> Just Isaac. <laughs> and, yeah, right. And, and that means you're older. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, around this, around this anniversary, which is, um, I mean, man, that's a, that's a real, that's a real milestone. It is. Um, and we want to discuss the almost the uh, impossibility of Andre Benjamin and Antoine Patton being able to not just form a duo, but how they, as an unknown Atlanta collective, uh, along with the production company Organized Noise, mm-hmm. headed by Rico Wade, right. break break through a landscape that was dominated by East Coast and West Coast acts to really become arguably the greatest hip hop group of all time smack dab in the midst of the east coast versus west coast rap war mm-hmm. where all of the oxygen out of the room was being sucked away right. this atlanta group who actually won the the 1994 source award for best new yep. act and was mm. and was booed and heckled yep. during the awards ceremony yep. who who else that, is up for that that i don't know i don't remember because the the most you know, the the one thing I remember, and I think most people remember from that moment, was Andre saying, 
the South got something to say. Yeah, yeah. Not right. Not not Outcast has something to say. The, the South, South got something, got something to say. To say so yeah. they took the entire region on their absolutely. back. Absolutely, absolutely. And it wasn't. You know, the thing is, is that for a long time up until that point, it was the South. Uh, you know, according to say New York, East Coast, and West Coast, the South didn't really have any credibility in hip hop music. So all of the influences, mm-hmm. and even Andre's. Um, you know, they they both were influenced by East and West Coast. You know what I'm saying? But they mm-hmm. were also influenced by UGK. You know what I'm saying? So all of that stuff, basically, they were saying like, you know, chill out because you know we get tired. And I'm I'm in Atlanta now, but I'm you know originally from New York. It's always like, oh, that's country. You know what I'm saying? Atlanta's like, oh, y'all country down there, and it's 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 disrespectful. So I think that was a moment that it wasn't a moment that was planned but it was a moment of frustration and it was like hold Mm -hmm. up like we are tired of the disrespect the south has something Mm -hmm. to say and i think if you look at the music today the south has definitely said something (laughs) you know what i mean it's funny to go from that moment to today where the south is monopolized the the entire hip-hop industry up until that point the south and i'm putting that in Mm -hmm. quotes the south Mm -hmm was represented basically by Miami bass music. Mm-hmm. Two live You're crew, talking about Luke, yeah. Luke. Uh-huh. But also from a from an alternative side, Arrested Development. Yes. Which had uh more the flair of Afrocentricity. What year what year was that? What year was Tennessee? Ninety one, ninety two. Okay. Because X Clan was ninety and that's that's really where the the, the look of it came from. Mm-hmm. And also Jungle Brothers. Jungle Brothers is probably a more closer model to what speech was was going for, that look mm. that Africa had. Another context that I want to put this in is that Atlanta was the was arguably the capital of R and B at that time, and it was LaFace and So So Def that kind of ruled the roost on what it what R and B sounded like uh, in the early '90s. Dallas Austin's rowdy too. Yes, right? absolutely, absolutely. But I think though, I think Arthur more to the point though, it wasn't none of that sounded like the South to me. Correct. You had Criss Cross who sounded like East Coast hip hop to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Then you had at the, at the time Jermaine Dupri's other big hit um, was a Chicago rapper. You know what I'm saying? Uh, 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 the Brat. Mm-hmm. And so, and then all those, I mean, Babyface and L.A. Reid, they Ohio. That's Cincinnati. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, mm-hmm. So that's Midwest. And so. It, and then all those other artists came down there so they were coming to Atlanta and making Atlanta this new you know type of Motown but it wasn't like there was an Atlanta sound coming out of any of them and so when I first I mean because to your point Arthur at that point in my mind being a teenager in the Midwest my idea of southern hip-hop was like you said uh, Luke and Ghetto mm-hmm. Boys you know and what I'm saying Ghetto, Ghetto Boys, Boys I know yes. Texas Right, I know te- that's Texas. I don't, you know, that to us, that's South. You know, what I'm saying anybody, anything right. South of Ohio is South to us. And then Arrested Development, that was that was Southern, but it was more like in the, you know, the intellectual Southern realm. It just felt like you know some type of um, tribe stuff, but in the mm-hmm. South. You know, when Southern playlistic Cadillac music hits, suddenly I feel like I'm in the backyard barbecue. Yes, you know what I'm saying of the South. Yes. The, for the mm-hmm. first time, so, like I never heard so, anything. So let like me that. ask you something. When did UGK? Night two. Night two was their first album. Okay, okay. So barely, barely before was that two years before Southern Playlistic. Mm. Um, right. But even them, you know, 
they, they weren't you know they didn't hit as mainstream as quickly as as uh no they did as southern player did and so to you me know, again to me it was like yeah i was aware of them but i wasn't aware of them like i was aware of the ghetto boys you know what i'm saying or luke right, right. You know, an, a better precursor example that you may be looking for, Isaac, would be Eight Ball and MJG. Yes, absolutely. Oh, mm. absolutely. Yeah, right, right, right. And all these, they really, all, all these artists is funny because UGK, Eight Ball, really, we heard them. Remember Arthur, the Box? I think they had that in, in Chicago yeah. at the time too. You had the Box, so that was the um, you know the video music uh, cable channel where you could basically you dial in a request and they would play it on you know on the they play the video or whatever. That's, mm-hmm. That was our exposure. That was our access to those because they weren't really playing them on the radio. Um, but when, yeah, to me, to answer your earlier question, what made Outkast different just on a personal level for me, it was the fact that that was the first time as a kid who was living in the Midwest, you know, listening to East Coast and West Coast rap had never really even been to the South. I think I've been to the South once in my entire life. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I heard music that sounded like it wasn't gangster, gangster like uh, right. uh, like um, Ghetto Boys. It wasn't a strip club, completely strip right. club like Luke. Right. It was mm-hmm. backyard barbecue. I was like, you know, I feel like I'm like I'm with them rolling through the pine. Yes. Like, yeah. You know, what I'm saying? Yeah. it was like it was crazy. It was like, what is this? Mm-hmm. You know, what I'm saying. And then it had, and it was so soulful. It was soulful in a way that nothing else had, was soulful at that time. And I like some of the other acts that we've talked about. They didn't really seem to have a local incubation period. They, they seemed to hit it pretty big right out the gate from the beginning, e- even internationally. So let me, let me say this, because it didn't start with an album. It started with a single. And uh, Players Ball mm-hmm. was a song that they did. They were really trying to get the music to L.A. Reid, to, to LaFace. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Rico Wade is a salesman. Like everyone respected him on the streets. Everyone knows Rico regarding the music. He took the lead when it came to, um, you know, basically putting a studio together and saying, hey, everybody was trying to get to Rico. To, and when Rico said, hey, I like your sound. Why don't you come over to the dungeon? That's what people uh-huh. were you know, ecstatic about the invitation. You know what I'm saying? But they, you have to understand that these guys went to school together. They were one degree mm-hmm. of separation between everyone. So once they got down in the dungeon and Rico was determined to sell this thing, he sold, um, he basically went to, and I'm not sure directly the person, I don't know if he got it directly to L.A. Reid the first time around, but basically Players Ball was a Christmas song. And... Mm. Mm-hmm. L.A. Reid agreed to put it on the LaFace Christmas album where the TLC song, I think TLC already had a song uh, that was on, TLC song, a Christmas song was on there. Uh, Tony Braxton's had a Christmas song that was out and it was part of the Christmas mm-hmm. LaFace uh, Records Christmas compilation. And so that was the beginning. And once it was put on the Christmas album and the Christmas album did well, L.A. Reid gave them an album deal. And then Players Ball was reworded. So you're not saying, um, all the players came on da da da. You know, it goes on Christmas Day. That's what the, you know, that was the original song. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and they, and then it was that. reworked to that. all day, air day. You feel what I'm saying? For the regular mm-hmm. album. So it was basically released a second time. And then from the Christmas album, that's where it really got the buzz. Yeah. Did it get, did it get radio? Did it get radio? Absolutely. Play? Absolutely. It got radio play. And everybody was before, just... Yes. Before the album dropped. 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's where people first discovered Outkast because that's the first time, mm-hmm. you know, anybody had really heard of them. Like, on, you know, locally, you know, you hear about your local artists before they're signed. Right. You know what I mean? But, right. But yeah, now, that's when they, they got out. Now, a cool thing about Players Ball is that, that there were some... There were some formulas that were applied there. I mean, so Sleepy Brown, you know, had a Curtis Mayfield vibe style mm-hmm. to his mm-hmm. singing, and and the beat, the beat itself was a proven beat. That's it's like a variation of uh, "Do What You Like," the Digital Underground mm-hmm. beat, slowed down. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the bass doubled up a little bit, and and uh, it, it so it had it had all the makings of something that was already going to get people's attention and get people dancing which may or may not necessarily have been the focus but i kind of go back to the face and have them being you know r&b royalty i would think they would want something that they could that could be played in a club hmm that see the thing is with that i wasn't around in those days i just know what the story is you know what i mean yeah because yeah. i hear them talk amongst each other and you know you just hear it so many times over the years so i wasn't uh part of dungeon family at that time i didn't come in until mm-hmm. Like 89, I was working. 89, I had my own deal. So it was probably around 91 when I started working mm-hmm. with LaFace Records. And then because I was working with LaFace Records, that was when Joy, Joy was, mm, Joy yeah, called mm-hmm. me because she was working on her solo project and someone needed to go, she needed someone to fill her spot to go on the road with Outcast overseas. But that was mm. already mm. after the first album. That was AT Aliens okay, album. Gotcha. And they were finishing, they were kind of in the middle of that project. That it wasn't even at the at the beginnings of that project. So I was very familiar with them, but not, you know, on a one 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 basis. You know what I'm saying? Like, we weren't like friends. We just knew each other because we all had an affiliation with LaFace Records and that's just kind of how it went, you know? So do you think LaFace took a risk in signing Outcast? I mean, given that the rest of their roster and their own musical background was R&B up until that point. Well, I, um, I don't do you know. Think there aren't- I, I, I wouldn't call it a risk. I just think that mm-hmm. you have to know L.A. Reid. Like, L.A. Reid is brilliant. He knows you You can't get in the mind of L.A. Reid. So there's. I don't mm-hmm. understand mm-hmm. The, the method to the madness, but there's definitely in his mind, there's there's something very logical about every decision that he makes. Now, as far I don't know if it was taking a risk. I think that he didn't have to be sold hard on Outkast. I think he just saw what it was and decided, you know, let's put this little, let's dangle this this Christmas record out there and see what happens with it. And boom, he just he just went with it after that. Um, but I think when you look at TLC, when you look at Tony Braxton, you know, when you look at all of these artists were there was really nothing like them before beforehand mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying so i think he that he took a risk with every act he signed to the face plus uh, around then like doggy style came out 93 right mm-hmm. and just around then la rap cali rap was really really big that soulful kind of funk based sound i think the roots came out with organics their first album in 1993 so I think you were beginning to see, you know, a sort of more instrumental sound perhaps in hip hop rather than just like boom bap and samples, etc. That may have helped pave the way for some of the stuff that Outkast was doing. Here's a real question. When did Regulate come out? Ooh. When did Warren G's Regulate come out? That's 94. Was it? Yeah. Was it above the rim, right? Yeah. 
mm. yeah above the rim soundtrack because i think that's what that's what that's what's that's what smoothed out west coast hip-hop hmm i think back then as everybody did divide things into a west coast sound and an east coast sound just musically beat wise we probably put them more in the west coast territory even though we knew they were from atlanta and not cali but um i think i think that's how we saw it so mm-hmm. um we're probably playing southern playlistic in in that kind of with that frame of mind even though that even though east coast in particular kind of poo-pooed them andre and big boy they had skill they had lyrical skill absolutely Those boys could rap but before you go there was the reaction at the Source Awards to um, to Outcast? Was that indicative of like the majority of listeners in America? No. Or was that just like a vibe based on where they were, where the award show was held at that time? Like uh, I was actually staying in California when Southern Playlistic dropped, and it was certainly among my circle over there. It was very big. And then a little while later, when I came back to London. It was huge here too. So, the Source Awards mm-hmm. was was the Source Awards held in New York at that time. It was. It was. Okay, because that had a whole lot to do with the reaction too. But but I think a huge part of it was they beat out someone. Who was it that they beat out in that category? Because that was a huge, huge deal. And mm. I think what it was was there was there was an anticipation for someone else I'm to win. I'm looking it up. To win. I'm gonna try to look it up. Cause see, you know, I wanna say I wanna say they were up against Notorious B.I.G. Now that would have got them booed. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if the Source Awards had specific nominees like that, but remember it was for best new group, not best new solo artist. So at that time it would have been like MOP, Laws of the Underground, um, Beat Nuts, Artifacts, Fuji's like that. But I think that's where the that's where the booze came from because it wasn't it wasn't about it wasn't about they weren't booing Outcast they were just booing the person that beat X yes uh-huh. you feel what I'm saying I think that was that yeah. was the situation but you know Outcast felt so disrespected that you know Andre just said what he had to say you know what I mean yeah. um, and you're right it was in the middle of that East Coast West Coast situation and so there was there was just a lot of I think angst, that was you know it, it yeah. just in the and air. I think that was a factor yeah. too. Yeah, the the, the the but was that trying to win the crown? Was that the same year as Snoop getting on stage and saying East Coast ain't got no love for Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre? Was was that the same year and the same year that Shu got on stage talking about Puffy in the videos, etc.? Yeah, I think all of that was the same year. I thought it was Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes, that was like basic. That that might be the goat at Source Awards. We might need to get a tape of that. I <laughs> know, <laughs> right? God, it was a lot. <laughs> there was a lot going on. Imagine you're a 19-year-old at that time who doesn't just listen to whatever's going on locally, but loves all aspects of rap, all aspects of Mm hip-hop. If you're going to the Source Awards in that kind of context, that is the award show. That is the real Mm -hmm. recognition Mm -hmm. that you've been Mm -hmm. after. Correct. You know, Double XL didn't exist back then. Yeah. It was the source. Uh, You know, and maybe rap pages. Oh, rap pages. Wow. Imagine as a 19-year-old, you're basically going to the Oscars. Yes. And imagine if you get there and everybody who you love and look up to, as far as you're aware, is booing you. That's, yeah. Yeah. that's got to be a kick in the gut. Yeah. Well, I think that speaks to, like like, like um, Keisha said, that speaks to Andre's statement. You know what I'm saying? The fact that he had the strength yeah. to make that statement. That was, that's, that's major. You know what I'm saying? At that, in that moment. Yeah. But let's, you know, let's take this outside of the context of just rap and let's be real about how the North viewed the south at that Correct. point in time and maybe even now it was you know we all viewed the south as unsophisticated 
you know, uneducated, um, unurbane. You know, we just it was the South. It was country. Absolutely. And the complexity more, you know, the music, outcast music, obviously, organized noise had an enormous amount to do with how they hit and had the success that they had as soon as most of us up north heard them. But at the same time, man, I think, and you know, maybe it's the writer in me that's a little biased towards this, but it was the complexity of their rhymes, and especially with, with Dre, but both of them, mm-hmm. um, and their rhyme and, and the, uh, the 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 kind of baton passing that they did, um, you know, the kind of the the uh, I think it was like it would be like one first, one would do one verse, then another one would do the other verse, and then they do the chorus, then they come back with the person who did the second verse would do the third verse. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they passed the baton in a kind of unique way. And just the complexity of their lyrics and the vocal arrangements, it was it was something so unexpected that like if you would have told me in the early 90s when, you know, we were all high on Tribe, that just a few years later, I'd be singing Ain't No Thing But A Chicken Wang. You're right. You know what that's I'm saying? Right. It's like, that's yeah. it like, no, nah, I'm not. <laughs> it's like, that's, that's not sophisticated enough for me. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm on this other thing. But we were, you know, and was, I think a lot of that had to do with the complexity of their rhymes and the skill of those two as MCs, I think that can be understated. But they also had they also had a very self empowerment content to some of their lyrics, particularly uh, you know get up get out Gets up, yeah. that they did with mm-hmm. Goody Mob to premiere Goody Mob. Um, they had a very be on something, don't you know don't 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 spend all your days trying to get mm-hmm. high, which was really funny because like eighty five percent of Southern playlisting is about weed <laughs> right. and smoking it. <laughs> what are we doing in the dungeon? Yeah, <laughs> with that Mary Jane. Yeah, correct. Right. But don't you do it. <laughs> you need to get up and get out and get something. <laughs> do something. You know, make something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Doing yeah. it. And then they they, uh, they they led by example. It kind of here's the thing. I I need to get to AT Aliens. Is that your one, Arthur? Is that your is that your favorite Outcast album? Yes, that's my favorite Outcast album for my ears, because I was a big Tribe fan. I'm a I'm I'm a Tribe head, you know, and I, I'm a low ender. Like my my classic Tribe album is Low End Theory, mm-hmm. right? So I responded a lot to the difference in the Tribe context of people's instinctive travels, which was kind of an amalgamation of 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 different influences and sounds to low end theory which was this cohesive sound this is what we sound like and i saw, i had that same correlation between southern playlistic mm-hmm. and when at aliens came out that i had the good opportunity of, of living in atlanta in 1996 when at aliens dropped and if you want to talk about an album that you could not possibly escape yep. from <laughs> it was yeah. it was literally the low end theory of atlanta it was the low-end theory me, of the let, South. Let, Everything changed from let that me, Let me say this. Because um, this is what I thought at the time. Southern Playalistic made me think that these guys are dope. But AT Aliens made me think, mm, these guys are special. Yeah. Because it, it made me think that there's a concept here that's more than just dope beats and dope rhymes. Like, with the whole imagery, the spirituality, the, the cosmology, the elevators video, etc., the artwork of all the albums. I, I agree with you. It had a level of ambition that I felt wasn't necessarily as common for that idiom back then. And they, they, they lost some of their early fan base behind that album too, because they couldn't figure out, and it was Andre in particular. <laughs> right, he wasn't as hood as he was before, right. But you know what, Jay, I, I agree with you. I just feel that I don't know, man. I, it may be because I was like Arthur. I, I was fortunate enough to live in Atlanta during that era. Mm-hmm. And 
that Southern playlistic, there's nothing more Atlanta to me than that. Album. I agree. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And more specifically, there's nothing more Southwest Atlanta to me than that. That's exactly that's um, exactly right. You know what I'm saying? I lived <laughs> I lived off of Camelton Road. You know what I'm saying? I lived mm-hmm. in College Park. Excuse me, College Park. College Park. You know what I'm saying? All right. <laughs> so <laughs> there's nothing. So yeah, I feel like I agree with you, Jay, as far as the ambition and kind of what started with ATL Aliens and continued on through uh, Stankonia, maybe even Speaker Box, but. There's just something to me that's very special about Southern Playlistic that I, I think sometimes gets overlooked. Uh, I'm not mad at that. And ironically, having said what I've just said, tune for tune, I prefer Southern Playlistic. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But, but as I alluded to earlier, I think AT Aliens made me think, well, hang on, these guys aren't just trying to be part of the genre. They're trying to, they're trying to move it. They're trying to drive it forward and... Mm-hmm. Um, and do something and that you know you that know, made me sit up and take notice you know what uh outcast was in my opinion they were the most regional non-regional group ever in other words <laughs> they sounded extraordinarily regional but because their influences came from so many other places yes. and, and they combined yes. that with you know atlanta and the southern and the in georgia more you know the, the the red you know they made you see that red dirt yeah. you know what i'm saying they, they made you that see the clay, pine trees yeah. That clay, right. So combining all that with, I heard scratching in there, you know what I'm saying, from East Coast. Right, right, right. You know what I'm saying, which blew my mind. Then I'm hearing, you know, the West Coast influence. They, and in the, in, like to Arthur's point, there was consciousness in their music. Then there was also some militancy, you yeah. know what I'm saying, some public enemy yeah. style militancy. Yeah. All this stuff yeah. was combined to the point where it's like they defied regions while being extraordinarily regional, which was, I don't think something anybody could have planned at the time. Okay, if Andre stayed normal, right, and they did <laughs> that, four what is that, albums, though? what is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Arthur. Hang on, hang it's on. Like, all right, on, watch it on, now. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> if Outkast stayed in the same vein as Southern Playlistic, but they just had great albums, would they be as great? Were it not for the change that happened, where you saw this duality, this visual duality and also this lyrical duality but see that was later andre was always andre and big boy have always been different in, in my opinion they but in my opinion they've never been on normal. the cover in like a in my opinion they've never been normal they've never been normal. i'm saying what about okay it the, the there was a backlash after ata at aliens going into equimini there was a backlash with the fan base it's like well why is this dude andre up here turban. wearing a turban right. and talking about outer but space I, but, but people think, didn't know go ahead johan I think it can be a double-edged sword, right? I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight now. You know, at the time in 94, 95, 96, you know, month to month, there may have been questions. There may have been even a backlash or or um, a lack of understanding in what they were trying to do. We can now look back and say, because they were so dope, all of that other stuff just fell by the wayside. You know, musical history is full of examples of geniuses who weren't understood at the time by their fan base, like... Look at Miles Davis and the late 60s. Look at JD, Jay Diller, when he first came on the scene um, in the 90s, etc. And the reaction to the Tribe album, etc. A lot of the time, it's the fan base's fault for not being able to evolve at the same pace as the artist that's actually driving the material. And if that evolution, if that taste evolution hasn't happened, you get judged as an artist. And words like normal get thrown around or abnormal. 
When in reality, if you fast forward a couple of years, suddenly what was abnormal is now normal. Well, see, but see, let me say this because Andre has gone on record several times and 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 said that like you know he didn't have a lot of money growing up. You know what I mean? He didn't. So when when he went to school, you know, he was. I, you know, I don't know if he was teased or if it was whatever, if it was him, him just trying to keep up with the Joneses or whatever. But, you know, they didn't have money to get polo shirts. You know what I'm saying? So his yeah. mom mm-hmm. would take something and sew, sew it on in the place of a polo on his shirt. Like, and he was always a different guy. Like, he... You know, he mm-hmm. never felt mm-hmm. like he fit in. He was never like the fashion, keeping up with with what's going on in the streets and this is what's popular to wear and this is what... He was never, ever that guy. And so for people to say, well, you know, well, they, you know, he changed and they were looking like, who are you? And, you know, when it came to AT aliens and him wearing the turbans, they got to understand that the tur- that's a beauty supply store dollar 50 cent at the time <laughs> right I like this is is. The, i mean you know what i'm saying it's just about he's always been a creative guy an original guy well i like this well shoot i'm gonna try this i'm gonna do this and and i think that with the recognition and notoriety you get the money and you get the freedom to be able to do more mm-hmm. of what to express yourself even more than than you were able to do without the money and without the recognition so now you yeah. have license to do it but it's like it's it's either you know 50 cent beauty supply store turban or you know yeah. now I can actually get furry jackets made and get these blonde wigs made it's, but yeah. it's the same person I believe that it was totally authentic that that's who he is and that's his personality but to do that in 1996 is radical in hip hop courageous it just is yeah I think though to your point Arthur from the outside looking in from people who didn't know him or people who weren't around him, just, you know, people looking at him. And, and this is pre-internet, mm-hmm. pre, you know, so it was like, wasn't course, like yeah. we weren't seeing him every day on, on Instagram. So it's like you caught glimpses in, a, in the video, right. in the magazine. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was kind of a, a, an abrupt shift mm-hmm. if you didn't know him or you didn't see him on a daily. So I do remember there's some articles and a little bit of, you know, talking like, oh, why is they're not, you know, this, that they're not as hood as we thought or whatever. Right. But at the same time, I also remember seeing support for that because it was like oh they're evolving mm-hmm. they, you know to your point Arthur they aren't just going to stay in that uh, southern playlistic zone they're moving right. into a new zone and to me right. from an artistic standpoint and from a standpoint of surviving in that marketplace um, and commercial art you know musicians they you know some of the, the the most iconic ones they evolved every album they had a different look every album absolutely and that's that was a brilliant move i think on both not just not just dre's part yes um but big correct. boy's part as well correct. Yeah. yeah and they evolved together i mean even though they look very different from each other coming up you know what i'm saying they did evolve together you know what i mean they they andre you know he went further out with his outfits but you know, big. He wasn't the same big boy that that was in play. You know, he well, he didn't dress this exactly the same right. way. He kept the street. I, he mm-hmm, has a street element mm-hmm. to, to him even to this day. But it's still floss, and it's still you know. Mm-hmm. But it's still not your average floss. You know what I mean? Right. You know. But 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 I mean, we all agree that that was that that was a big dynamic, a a, a divisive dynamic. Absolute. But but compared to um, compared to the formula, because. Um, we're talking visuals, right? So compared to the West Coast formula, which was low rises and low riders, mm-hmm. 
and the East Coast formula, which was high rises, mm. subways, um, alleyways, staircases. It was extremely different. You know, you had all the animation with these guys going on. It was very different to that visual norm that a lot of listeners had perhaps taken for granted or mm-hmm. even in a weird way come to rely on. But didn't it show also, and you guys know more about this than me, didn't it show also their awareness of their musical heritage as far as going back into some of those 70s yes, visuals absolutely. and 70s funk images? Yeah. yeah. So it also, yeah. it also revealed them to be, to Arthur's point, not just some normal cats. These are some cats who had some, you know, a, music, a level of music intellectualism that we didn't necessarily ascribe to them from the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, but there it is. And I think visually, I think the mesh of the two um, to what Keisha was saying a minute ago with Big Boy's, because B- Big Boy looks like he's from the west side of Chicago. You know what I'm saying? He, mm-hmm. he, he, that's, when I see him, I see west side. You know, mm-hmm. Dre mm-hmm. looks like Five Points, Atlanta. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? It's like he, you know, he mixed with College Park, mixed with. And so the two of them together, you know, I don't think the great, you know, the most brilliant art director, you know what I'm saying, for Mac would have never come up with that. You know what I'm saying? It was like that. And because it was authentic, because it, it was organic, it resonated to a point where it's like when you saw them, whether you're talking about the look for AT aliens or how it evolved into Equimini and Stankonia, it just, it was, it was beautiful. It was perfect, you know? And I think it reached this culmination with Speaker Box Love Below where they split, but they didn't split. Correct. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. it was like they were apart, but they weren't Correct. apart. Um, and there was, to me, there was, that was like such a unique moment. Um, I don't mean to jump ahead to that album, but that was such a unique moment because I maybe you guys know different, but I had never seen anything like that where it was like this duo split, Correct. but they didn't split. Correct. What mm-hmm. what the what the hell is this? You know? Yeah, and that was a you know that was a strange time too because um, you know we were on the road. Andre had you know he just we knew that he wanted to do different things. He expressed that he wanted to do different things. You know there was not a you know him and and Big weren't on the outs they didn't hate each other it wasn't anything like that but artistically Dre wanted to do different things and so they had an obligation to the label to release another Mm -hmm. album and I want to say it was to release two albums and they Mm -hmm. this is to my knowledge now I could be getting some of this stuff a little wrong but so I know that they had um, an obligation to the label to put out um, one more record I want to say two and they spoke with L.A. Reid, and this was the way that they fulfilled the obligation to do a double album. Mm. I've often said that The Love Below is, to me, one of the greatest Prince albums that Prince never made. How how influential was he on Dre at that point? Was he listening to you him all what? the time at I, that point? or was he- I, don't, I don't know. I would say, see, because we were on tour with, the, with Stankonia, mm-hmm. and there was two buses. You had Big Boy's bus and you had Andre's bus. Big Boy's bus was for the, you know, the smokers, the, you know, you ain't no telling what was happening on the bus. Okay? <laughs> that, I mean, I, I didn't know because I wasn't was on that Magic bus. Was it Magic City? Was it, what mean, was going on up there? I was, I was, that was not my bus. I had no desire to be on that bus. And so the cornball bus was the Andre bus, which was myself, uh-huh. um, uh, Wild Peach, uh, you know, and... Anita Baker was always playing. You know, mm, Andre was mm, getting jazz, mm. getting guitar lessons, and they were like, "Ah, oh, man, this is you know, mm. it was vegan food in our refrigerator, and they had chicken wings in their <laughs> refrigerator." You know what I mean? So it, it was uh-huh. like uh-huh. it was night and day. So you came to our bus and you heard like classical music or Anita Baker or Andre, 
you know, trying to pluck through a guitar, like the very early stages of him learning guitar. And his and his guitar teacher was also on that bus with us. There was really nothing, you know, you know, great happening on bus. We were cool. We were chill. We had incense burning. We had aromatherapy mm-hmm, popping off. Mm-hmm. And the other, the <laughs> other one was just, oh my god, you know what I mean? Some <laughs> other kind of therapy. It was off. some other kind of therapy going on. And whenever they ran out of food. They would come over mm-hmm. and see, like, because we had, you know, they took all of the stuff from the dressing rooms, all of the chips, everything that was in the mm-hmm. dressing rooms went to Big Boy's bus. Mm-hmm. So they had I the liquor, had, okay. they had the chips, they had that we <laughs> And there was a chef that was on the road with us, and that chef knew to make Big this kind of food and to make Andre that kind mm-hmm. of food. So, and the chef stayed with us on our end. So we always had stuff left over where they didn't we always had snacks Mm. but they didn't want our snacks you know what I mean (laughs) that's what the bus so (laughs) I I say all of that to say that there was a lot of Anita Baker happening there was a lot of Andre loves Anita Baker because his mother played Anita Baker growing up and he absolutely adored Mm. Anita Baker there wasn't I don't remember any Prince being played on Mm. the bus at all no so I would say and I remember Specifically, someone had given Andre some flowers and I don't know if it was his birthday. I don't know what it was for, but I I think someone just a fan just gave him some some roses and he made the comment on the bus because they were on the on the table. He made a comment when he came out of the back one day that like these roses smell like boo boo. (laughs) <laughs> and it was after you know it was after a few days of them getting you know getting old and he was just like mm, you know what I mean and he was just like do y'all notice that and we were like yeah they do kind of and next thing I knew there was a song written about it but I never heard like he didn't write the song right then he didn't like he, mm-hmm. he started playing records songs from the from the um from the Love Below album and I think Pink and Blue was the first one that he played for us and then maybe a month or so later I heard Roses I was like no fucking way and immediately I went to that moment so I don't you know it's kind of hard to you can't pinpoint the influences is my whole point you can't pinpoint it because I don't remember Mm -hmm. any prints being played at all but I do remember that Roses story and so you gotta understand that it was just you're talking about you're talking about guys that had gotten to a point in their career that I mean nobody even imagined this like I remember us going overseas Mm. my very first tour with them um, Mm. when we went overseas we it was all promotional stuff so it was all stuff for BMG and it was for the label and it was really like you know you Mm. know suit and tie guys in the office and you know you have to perform you know these songs on the album and you know let them know what they're about to market basically you know and you know nobody's clapping everybody's like oh you know you get the courtesy claps and it was like what the hell and when we went back two months later it was we're pulling up to the hotel and there are people camped out down the block and around the corner Mm. with blankets and pillows and tents outside of the hotel we were like what the hell we didn't know what they were there for. We were like, oh, is something going on? Is something, what's going on in the city right now? Like people are, and then we saw signs that said outcast. We were like, what? Like we, we just, mm. we were, I mean, we were overwhelmed. We were on the bus pulling up to seeing this and then it, it, it just became a normal thing. So when you mm. talk about Big's bus, it was, 
you know, everybody's on that bus living their best life. Like, I cannot believe we are here. You know what I mean? Like, you're turning up with family. You know what I'm saying? Mm, we, yeah. Everyone knew each other very, very well. You know what I'm saying? And mm. it was just, it was just a great moment to have everybody experience that. I think the biggest challenge that came was trying to sift through the family members that just wasn't working for the situation. You know what I'm saying? Because when you, when you go to another level, you know, you, certain things you just can't do yeah. anymore. And so it was kind of like, okay, we got to figure out, okay, we need to do it like this now. You know what I mean? And it was a slow, slow process and people kind of fall off. But family, to this day, everyone is still down the same way they were in the beginning. It's just how, I mean, and, and that's that's yeah. just what it is. And I know that sometimes that can cause, well, not necessarily tension, but like what you were saying about, you know, family. It's like, well, you know, now is this and it's not fun anymore. It is. And and, and I don't know, um, you know, just to speculate, because I've never actually, you know, pulled Andre to the side and say, you know, why don't you want to do this anymore? You know, but I think that was a huge part of it. It wasn't as fun anymore. It wasn't as fun anymore. And I think Big Boy felt the obligation to keep it going. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was, everybody, you know, everyone was really thankful for where they were at the time. But, you know, after a while, I mean, it, it is, it's work all the time. It's work all the time. But when yeah. there's, when it becomes yeah. a huge imbalance where it's like, it's all work and not fun anymore. And, and this thing this train started off fun. You know what I mean? This was a fun train. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, you mm -hmm. know, I don't know. You know, but, and then, you know, offers started coming in to do movies and, and other things like that. And, and Andre just wanted to take advantage of those opportunities while they were there, you know? And that's all that was, really. It was no, it was no bad blood. I remember when they were working on the, um, the double album and... Because they had a Greatest Hits album that was put out and, you know, and the Scooby-Doo soundtrack and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff that was put out uh, in between uh, Bombs Over Baghdad and the Speaker Box Love Below album. And I remember we were, we had to do something promotional for MTV in Europe. I don't remember what country it was. Um, and Andre was on the show and he was going to be performing Hey Ya and we were doing The Way You Move. And Big mm -hmm. had the entire band the same ensemble it was like oh my god like when i thought about like he's got the weight of all of this on his shoulders now because he felt hmm. like well everybody still needs to work i'm gonna keep it as as much uh, the same as i as possible you know what i mean as as what the uh -huh. fans are used to seeing i'm trying to give them the same thing that we've been giving them that they've been loving and so he kept all of the dancers all of the singers the whole band all of that was on big and then you had andre performing mm -hmm. andre had there were these ca cardboard cutouts of andre playing the piano you know in the hey ya green pants and you know, mm -hmm. and andre on the bass and andre and those were life-size cardboard cutouts that were on the stage behind him while the track was playing and you know three singers singing it live with the track and then you had all of us to come out full band you know all the colorful everything giving them you know classic outcast performance and with big boy it was just such a strange 
golly, I can't, mm-hmm. it was such a strange moment. I was like, what the hell is happening right now? It was just, it was really, really weird to see Andre performing with tracks and cardboard cutouts. And then we came and did what we norm- we, we usually do, you know, just minus mm-hmm. Andre. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Andre was there on the side. And I remember feeling like wondering, like, is he going to come on stage? Like, is he going to do? Because at that point we had edited the Outkast songs down to just Big Boy's verses. Mm-hmm. And it was like, is, is Dre going to come up and do? And he was like, nah, you know. And I was like, what? Like, he's right there. Like, you're right there. You're like, you're right <laughs> here. Like, what are you? You know, I just, I didn't understand it at the time, you know. And then when the album came out, it was like, whoo. You know, when the album came out, the album Speaker Box Love Below was incredible. It was it was incredible on both sides, you know, but the collaboration still still existed because when you think about ghetto music on Big Boy's side of the album, on the speaker box side of the album, you know, Andre wrote that hook. Find a way to get out, without a hit mm-hmm. out, you dig in, you dig out, you get out, ghetto music. That was that was Andre mm-hmm. wrote that. So they collaborated on certain songs. And Big Boy was in the Roses absolutely, video. Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember that was a big deal that, that Big Boy was in the yeah, Roses video. Yeah, and the crazy part, it was a big deal to everyone on the outside, but there was not a falling out. You know what I mean? Like, they had done these songs. There was an, um, there was a movie that they were working on. This is before Idlewild. There was a movie that they were working on and they were working on soundtracks, songs for the soundtrack of that movie. And so, they decided to pull some of the songs from that soundtrack and make that either depending upon the sound of that song whether it fit on the speaker box side or the love below side of the album and mm-hmm. that's how a lot of that album kind of came to be because there were already songs that they had worked on for a soundtrack to me from at aliens especially from equimini through speaker box love below their sounds were different but they were they were in the same zone to me you know what I'm saying it wasn't like if you heard uh equimini and then you went to speaker box love below you were in complete shock. You know, it, it, it evolved, but it wasn't so. Now, from Southern Playalistic to to the Love Below, yeah, definitely. But I just feel like once they hit that groove in like '96, '97, they kind of you know stayed with that and rode that groove all the way throughout. Especially Equimini and Stagonia. I don't, I don't see a huge difference between those two albums. While while, while we have Keisha here, I think, it, and this is something I've said on previous TMS shows when we talk about hip hop, is that. I feel like everyone talks about lyrics, everyone talks about music. We don't really focus, I don't think hip hop gets enough love in terms of vocalist and the importance of, or the uniqueness of certain vocalists. And I think, I just wanna hear Keisha talk on it for a minute as far as these were two very unique vocalists, very talented vocalists. Um, and you know, the fact that they were together is to me another reason that you know puts outcast in that argument as far as greatest hip-hop groups of all time absolutely Um, absolutely their voices are very distinctive you know who they are um but they've always been that well andre i think andre kind of evolved after the first album he kind of evolved into his his voice but you know i think when when you talk about hip-hop now and you talk about the singing rappers as far as I know, Andre's the first person to do that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you go back to Equimini and AT Aliens, Andre was already doing that. But that's when it was looked at as weird. Like, oh, what is he doing? What is he? And now that's all you hear. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I think that 
you know, their voice. I mean, I think both of their voices, their cadence, I think it's, it's very unique. It always has been. But I think that they are trailblazers in that way as well. I really do. Because you don't hear anybody that sounds like them. And, and, and Andre, I mean, if, if there's somebody else who started that singing and rapping at the same time, then, and he didn't do it intentionally. He just did did what he felt like doing it. If somebody else did it before him, then, you know, school me. But as far as I know, he was the person who started that. Yeah, I, I think the only one that I can think of on that level of major notoriety would be Bone Thugs. Mm-hmm. 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 Maybe so. I mean, because their whole thing was singing. Like, they were doing more singing than... I mean, they had... Their, their, their raps were super melodic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, but I mean, just in the way that... That you rap a line and then you sing a line and then you rap a line and then you sing the hook and and the rapper is the actual singer i haven't seen i hadn't seen yeah. that be, before before andre i think a lot of people would want another outcast album but uh, but i wouldn't want another outcast album as either obligation or you know, because we should. I mean, I, I remember Andre's gone on record to say that, well, you know, I, I just didn't have anything to talk about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I ran out of just stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I respect that because, you know, the authenticity is a main ingredient of what made that group work. Correct. Well, you don't have to worry about anything about uh, regarding force. You know, it won't it won't be done out of mm-hmm. pressure. Nobody gives into what that. What is Dre doing now? Because I just saw Big Boy at the, at the Super Bowl. What is so? What's Dre doing now? Big Boy. I mean, Keisha was there, right? Keisha, you were you were you were doing the Super Bowl with? Big yeah, Boy. I did the Super Bowl with him in Maroon Five. Nice. Yeah, it was cool. Um, Dre is Dre is just doing. I mean, you know what I mean? Like Dre, he had you know he had the uh, he has the tree torn endorsement, so he came out with a line of sneakers with tree torn. Like he's just kind of doing whatever the hell he wants to do. You know what I'm saying? He was down here though, because the Dungeon family has a tour. Um, that's out now. They started at uh, South by Southwest. Dre was here for about a... Well, I know he was here. I don't know how long. Um, I didn't get a chance to see him while he was here. But, you know, I know he was in the studio with them. But, you know, that was when they were working on the show for the Dungeon Family Tour. So it was him and Goody Mob and Big and everybody was in the studio. Um, I don't know that they were working on anything. But, you know, Dre's... He's around. He's not... You know, everybody else doesn't see him. It's so funny because you on the internet and you see like there was an Andre 3000 sighting. You know, <laughs> right? You know, it's, it's <laughs> like just so weird to me. You know what I mean? But you know, I mean, it's 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 normal around here. Everything is everything is everything. You know what I'm saying? It's nothing different around here. I take another uh, Andre 3000, the class of 3000, that album. Oh man, the, uh, cartoon man, album. I missed oh, that so album. much. I missed jam. the show. We needed it. <laughs> well, I mean, I just missed the show in general. It was such a great concept. You know what I mean? It was a great concept, and that album was off the charts. It really was. The album was excellent. Yeah, it it really was. And I mean, to my knowledge, I mean, he's still working on, he's working on a project, but I don't know anything about it. I don't know when it's coming out, and I I, I think, you know, whenever it's done, we'll hear it. If ever it's done, we'll hear it. You know, I don't know. I I don't when I don't know when I'm around these guys. I don't, we don't talk about that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Right. So. Do you think that Outkast retired too early as a group? You know, that's a subjective question. I think that people should retire when they feel like they're done. I don't think that mm-hmm. they should feel obligated to stay um, in the game if they don't feel like they have anything to offer, number one. Um, 
or if they're not if if anything keeps them motivated keeps them from being motivated to do so you know so for me i think that outcast should be retired simply because andre doesn't feel like he has anything to contribute Mm-hmm. I think I think that's valid. I think that's the reason why you either stay in it or you should stay in it or get out of it. I don't think that it should be out of obligation for. And that was, you know, that was a a strange place to be. That's a hard place to be for Andre when your partner wants to keep going. Yeah. You know, I remember saying? You talking so it kind about of forces how, big to. Yeah. Okay, you figure out who you are as an individual artist. And now that Big's done that, he's totally comfortable in that. Mm-hmm. However, he does welcome Andre to come back whenever. Like, whatever he wants to do. They're friends first. Oh, yeah. You okay. know what I'm saying? So, should they have retired? Did they retire too early? I don't think I don't think that's um, for me on the, mm-hmm. on the inside. Partially on the inside. You know, I'm not all mm-hmm. the way on the inside. But um, I would say that it happened when it was supposed to happen for the reasons it should have happened you know and that's there's no hidden you know there's no hidden anything in that in that statement that i'm making okay but put your fan hat on would you want to hear another outcast album i absolutely would want to hear an outcast album you know i saw a post that um timo goody posted the other day you know and andre mm-hmm. was in the studio with mm-hmm. them because they're getting ready for this goody mob tour and i was like if they could just lay something down right quick you know what I mean? If they yeah, could just right do there. something and, and leak it, like you're right, right there. there. Just put it out and leak it. Like, please, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. But yeah, so I mean, yeah, the fan in me always, I always want to hear that. I always want to hear that. But I do know that, you know, with growth, with age, with children, with, you know, the passing of your parents, like, that's a yeah, lot. Yeah. You know, I just don't even know yeah. if I would be motivated to do shit after that. So kudos mm-hmm. to him for even mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. being able to to be, you know, after some of the shit that he's endured. You know what I mean? We've, we mm-hmm. all go mm-hmm. through shit, but I honestly have so much compassion for him because I can't imagine, and I'm speaking of Andre, I can't imagine what that feels like to lose one parent mm-hmm. and then lose the next parent and then just recently like in the last month lost his stepdad the one who primarily raised him like that's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know and it's just tough man it's tough that's tough so you know whatever you do bro you know i'm with you yeah do you think that what now were you part of the reunion tour yes this was coachella right well coachella was the first was the the jump off for the tour was the first one right and Coachella is done music festival um, in Indio outside of Los Angeles right. every year in April over two weekends, mm-hmm. and they rep- so they have one weekend and then they repeat the same Correct. concert, the same lineup, the same set list, mm-hmm. everything the second weekend. And as I understand it, for that um, for that inaugural Outcast Twenty performance at Coachella for the first weekend. That's when there was an audience reaction, correct? Particularly about Andre, but then the second weekend, I understand that the it, second weekend was bananas. He, he it was completely, he, I mean, right, it was go. bananas. Like it was night and day. And there was a phone call from Prince or something. Well, Prince was or, actually there at the first. He was at the wow, first okay. performance, and um, you know, Andre, he had on a cap, like he wasn't wearing a wig, he wasn't wearing any costumes. Like you have to understand that the audience had only heard 
They, I mean, he, they were left with the hey ya, Andre. You know, and and mm-hmm. and the the live performances, you know, with wigs and furry pants and stuff like that. And then, so when they when he came back, that's what they expected to see. You know what I'm saying? It was nothing to us that he was wearing overalls and a cap. You know, but to yeah. the audience, you know, they were like, "What the hell?" And we were kind of looking at the audience like, "What do you mean, what the hell? Like, what, what the hell with y'all?" Because we didn't, I, we didn't, we didn't say anything wrong with that. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. have to understand that, like, this is. This is family. We all know each other. We all know. So nobody questioned like, oh, you shouldn't wear that. You shouldn't. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. you know, after there were so many people at the at the first show, um, and I think there was so much, there was so much anticipation behind it. Everybody was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And they were expecting all of this spectacular you know. 20th anniversary as well, right? Yeah, it was the 20th anniversary, but they hadn't performed together in 12 years. At that point, maybe that's what sparked the 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 lukewarm. Oh, absolutely! But a lot of it was Andre. He looked like he didn't want to be there. We had some um, we had some sound issues, uh, visual issues. Like I mean, the audience wouldn't know that, but we had some issues on the stage. The sound was fine in the audience, but we had some issues on the stage, and it was. You know, it was hard for everyone to get through that first. It was it was super tough to get through that very first mm-hmm, Coachella mm-hmm. performance. So, um, but Prince was there. Mm. Uh, Prince mm-hmm. spoke with both of them. But, you know, Prince gave some advice. And, you know, we knew that there had to be some revamping. So we went back to Atlanta in between those two weeks and revamped and, mm. and you know, moved some songs around and... Um, Per Prince's uh, recommendation, you should hit them with the first seven. Bam, 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 bam. Out the door. Seven. Seven hits straight out the gate. Mm-hmm. And they will lose their mind. And after that, you can do whatever the hell you want to. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he said that he got that advice from Mary J. What? When she was when she was a child? <laughs> That's a full lid. We invite you to subscribe and comment in iTunes or on the podcast app. Uh, We're also found on Spotify and everywhere fine podcasts are distributed. Shout out to NPR One. Our Twitter handle is Total Music Snobs and we're on Instagram at The Music Snobs. We'll see you next week on our sister show, Snobs on Film, with filmmaker Jordan Peele as the topic. Take care. Express my